Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Well, we've been, uh, been praying and planning and hoping and encouraging, and you're here tonight, and I believe God has something very, very special for all of us. That song just touched the very core of my being tonight, and I believe God wants to do something tonight in my heart, and I'm open to whatever God wants to show me. Gay led us in that prayer last week of uh, search my heart, O God, and see if there's any offensive way in me. Lord, if I've sinned, Lord, if I've done anything that causes you sorrow, show me, Lord, and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Wow. God is here. Lane Loman is in the house. Lane, come on up. Yes. We were, we were just talking tonight, and we had just a great time together. 1980 or 81, we first met Lane, and he's been doing, uh, serving God for a long, long time, longer than I've been alive. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'm excited. Gay and I are excited. It started in November on a Facebook conversation right. that we said God wants to do something, and we scheduled him, and this is a date he had. It's hard to get, a, get on his calendar, and we had this date, and it worked just fine in our calendar. So would you just make him feel really welcome tonight, Reverend Lane Loman. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Great to be here. While you find that, it'll be on the screen. What a joy to be here, to know that God has something incredible for us over these next several days. Revival is for the church. It's for the people of God. You can't revive something that's dead, so the sinner is dead in sin, trespass. And we want to reach the sinner. We'll talk about that a little later. But revival is for those of us who have embraced the name of Jesus. We want him to do something new, something fresh in our lives in these days. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, listen carefully to what I say. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Speaking of the first century church. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But you receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you. Listen carefully to what I say. And the Lord added to their number Daily, those who are being saved. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this gathering on this Saturday evening. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about being here, but more importantly, I'm excited about you being here and meeting with us tonight as we consider the Word of God. And I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God 
would be enlivened in our minds and in our hearts. And we wouldn't be the same people when we leave here in a little while. Come, Holy Spirit. I ask it in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Being the son of an evangelist, I have been involved in revivals all of my life. And I can remember back in the decade of the 50s when I lived in North Carolina, my dad would be in a revival meeting within commuting distance of our home there in Greensboro, and he would walk in the house and he would look at me, his third son, and he'd say, hey, Lane, how would you like to go with me tonight to the revival meeting? And when my dad posed that question to me, it didn't take long for me to come up with the answer. Because you see, back in the early 50s, we didn't eat out as much as you do now. And I knew that if I went with my father to that revival service that night, we would leave early enough to stop at one of his favorite restaurants. And then I also knew that my dad, being a great lover of ice cream, we would stop at the local dairy bar on the way home and get a cone of ice cream before we got back to the house. So when dad would ask me, hey, Lane, would you like to go to the revival meeting with me tonight? I would always say, sure, Pop, I want to go with you. And I can remember being in the car with my dad. Oh, I might have been seven, eight years old, and we would drive down those winding two-lane roads there in central North Carolina, and I, my little mind would begin to race, and I would think to myself, I wonder how these people heard about my dad. I wonder how my dad heard about these people. And then I was reminded that my dad was on the radio there in the triad part of North Carolina, and people would hear my dad preach every Saturday morning on WBBB radio, and he would preach to that microphone like he was preaching to 500 people, and they would call my dad to come to their churches to conduct revival meetings, or oh, it might have been a Baptist church, or a Methodist church, or a Nazarene church, or a Pilgrim Holiness church, all kinds of churches, inviting my dad to come for revival meetings, and so I can remember going there, I'd sit there like little Jonathan sitting here on the front row and I'd sit there and I'd listen to my dad preach and I would be amazed at how my dad could preach the word of God with such energy and with such power and then I remember dad would come to the end of his sermon and he'd have the folks stand to their feet and he'd say how many people here in this service tonight have a spiritual need and you would like to signify that spiritual need by raising your hand and I'd peek a little bit and I'd look back across the congregation and I'd see people raise their hand all over the place. And then we'd sing one of those great old traditional revival invitation songs like Just As I Am Without One Plea or Almost Persuaded or Is Thy Heart Right With God? And we would sing the song and then I'd see my dad do something you rarely see people do or probably never see people do in this day and age. My dad, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he'd come down off the platform and he would walk the aisle of the church and as the Spirit would lead him, he'd speak to one of those people that had raised their hand signifying a spiritual need and he would say something like this to them. Wouldn't you like to come and let Jesus meet your need tonight? Wouldn't you like to pray? And I can remember seeing those people take my dad's arm and he would lead them down to the altar and they would do what we call in the old-fashioned way, they'd pray through to wonderful victory. And I remember that as a kid. I can remember as a pastor after I accepted my own call to preach and I was in ministry in Nashville, Tennessee, we would have revival meetings. And I remember one revival meeting over a Labor Day weekend that so impacted our church that it created a spirit of revival that lasted for 12 months in that local congregation. 
I can remember conducting a revival meeting as an evangelist down here at Richmond Southside. That's what it was called back in those days. Richmond Southside Church of the Nazarene. My dad and I went there, started on a Wednesday night, and we were working in tandem. Dad would preach, I would sing, and then we'd reverse roles the next night. And I can remember on Saturday night, God came. He moved into that place and people began to be broken before the Lord. There were people kneeling around the front of that sanctuary, maybe three or four deep. That service lasted until 10 o'clock on that Saturday night and that spirit of brokenness and openness to the Spirit of God bled over into the Sunday morning worship service and they decided to extend the revival an extra three days. 70 people were saved during that revival meeting. Seventy people joined that church as a result of that revival meeting. I read about other revivals. I read about the great Cane Ridge revival in 1800, how some 20,000 people gathered in a remote location outside of Lexington, Kentucky, and they came and God met with those people there on that remote place outside of that city in Kentucky. And it was stated by one historian that some 500 people were struck down as though they had been shot with a cannon. But do you know what struck them down as the preacher shared the word of God? It was the spirit of God, the power of God moving there on that place called Cane Ridge. I remember reading about the great Asbury revival that happened at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky in 1970. It was called the Great Experiment. A group of some 30 students on that college campus, they believed God for a revival, and they began to pray 30 days. They prayed every day for 30 minutes, and at the end of the 30-day period of time, they came together on a Thursday night, and they prayed as one, and they said, God, would you come? And the Spirit of God spoke into their spirits the fact that he was going to come on that college campus. And the next morning during the chapel service that was intended to last maybe 50 minutes God came and broke in on that college student body and on professors and that chapel service that was intended to last 50 minutes lasted seven days 24 hours a day for seven days the spirit of God moving on that college campus it spread out across America those students went to other college campuses and where they went a spirit of revival broke out on that college campus I don't need to tell you tonight I believe in revival. Uh, I believe that God uh, wants to do great things in these days. I believe he wants to move upon the best of us as well as upon the worst of us. God wants to do a fresh and a new thing in our lives. But if I were to ask each of you tonight to define revival, what would you say? How would you explain it? What kind of definition would you give it? Now, I recognize tonight that I'm speaking to a rather cosmopolitan group of people, but yet I suspect that there are some here tonight who can remember the old-fashioned revivals of yesteryear. You can remember when the revival would start and the evangelist would come, and some of you might say, well, now, Lane, when you mention that word revival, I think of power, power, 
the power of God being demonstrated in a fresh and new way in the life of the church and of a truth. I believe that when real revival comes to a body of believers, there is an indication of the power of God that begins to operate in each and every one of us. You remember what Jesus said there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said that, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And when you study that passage of Scripture there in Acts chapter 2, you can see just as Jesus predicted, there was an infusion of power that happened in the lives of the 120 that gathered in that downtown motel room in Jerusalem. And they hit the streets of Jerusalem with an abandon to share the Word of God. There was an indication of power. I'd love to see a kind of revival break out like what Joel prophesied. Joel said in the last days, I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh. And I would like to be a part of that kind of move of God, wouldn't you? I'd like to see God come and work that like that in our lives. I'd like to see a kind of revival take hold of us in these days, like what happened in Reynosa, Mexico in 1975. In 1975, a revival meeting broke out in a dead, dried-up, downtown, United Methodist Church in that city. And it all happened because of one little 10-year-old girl by the name of Lily Garcia. On Saturday night, Lily Garcia was reading her Bible. She came across that verse of Scripture in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 13. It says this, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the Father give the Spirit to those who desire Him? And when she read that, there began to burn in the heart of that little 10-year-old girl a desire to know the power of the Holy Spirit in her own life. The following morning, she went to church, that dead, downtown, dried up, United Methodist Church. And as Pastor Baldazar Gonzalez was about to pronounce the benediction after a rather predictable morning service, Lily Garcia got up from where she was sitting on this side of the sanctuary and she made her way down to where Pastor Gonzalez was standing, now in front of the communion table. And before he could pronounce the benediction, that little 10-year-old girl looked at her pastor and said, Pastor, before you pronounce the benediction, I would like to know the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Baldazar Gonzalez told the story after the fact. He said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle this little 10-year-old girl who wanted to know the power of the Holy Spirit in her life. He said, so I just tried to slough her off. And I looked at her and said, well, now, Lily, you know that when we are all saved, we all kind of have the Holy Spirit. And he said, Lily, if you'll just wait till I pronounce the benediction, then I will talk with you, take you to my office, and we'll discuss this. He said, that little 10-year-old girl stamped, stomped her little bare foot. And she said, I don't want to wait till after the benediction. I want to know the power of the Holy Spirit right now. 
He said, I was baffled. I didn't know what to do. So he said, I did that which my Methodist training had taught me to do in situations like this. He said, I went up on the platform and looked behind the pulpit stand and pulled out the Methodist prayer book. And he said, I began to leaf through the Methodist prayer book to try and find a suitable prayer to read over this little insistent 10-year-old that would satisfy her. And he said, I finally settled on the prayer of church membership. And he said, I began to read the prayer of church membership over this little 10-year-old girl, not realizing all that that prayer contained. And he said, I came to a portion of that prayer that said this, may every sinful affection in this thy child die out. May every sinful Affection in this thy child die out. He said, when I read those words over that little 10-year-old girl, a spirit of power and holiness descended upon her. And he said, she began to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit right there in that downtown United Methodist Church. He said, she proceeded to climb up on the altar railing in that church and began to operate in and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He said, she looked back across the congregation and she pointed out a man in my church and said, sir, you've got a spirit of deceit in your heart and you need to ask God to deliver you from that. He said, she turned and pointed to another man and said, sir, you've got a spirit of adultery in your heart and you need to come and ask God to deliver you of that. He said that those two men got up from where they were sitting and came down to the altar and began to seek the face of God. And he said, then I looked and men from all over the congregation got up and they came to the altar for fear. She might point out what was wrong in their lives. <laughs> and he said, they came and they began to seek the face of God and they began to pray. And there was a spirit of power that was being demonstrated across the front of that United Methodist Church. He stood there and thought. To, he said, I thought to myself, I've lost control of these people. Uh, I've lost control of my church. Uh, and then he stood there in the middle of it all uh, and he stomped his foot and he said, this has got to stop. This can't go on until I know the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And that little 10-year-old girl came over and placed her hands on her pastor's forehead and began to pray that the Spirit of God would fall on him and come into his life. And a revival meeting broke out. A spirit of revival somehow fell on that congregation. It spread all over the city of Reynosa, Mexico. It was so powerful that it spread into the southern region of the Baja of Southern California. Thousands of people were swept into the kingdom of God. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that had come upon the lives of the people of that church and that pastor. Yes, my friend, when real revival comes, you'll see it. The power of the Holy Spirit will begin to operate. You'll see it in the lives of children around your church. Uh, they'll recognize the power of God. Uh, it'll begin to operate in their lives. You'll see it in the lives of teenagers. They'll begin to recognize that God has something unique and special for them as well as he does for as much as he does for the adults. Uh, you'll see it in the lives of young adults as well. 
They'll begin to reevaluate their lives and their priorities, and they'll begin to seek the face of God for direction in their own lives. You'll see it in the lives of senior citizens who have thought for a long time that God can't use them, but God will, can, will, will somehow begin to get in their lives and begin to start using them because of their availability. Listen, my friend, it does not depend upon the smug or the sophisticated. The Bible says it's not by might, it's not by power that we have, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord God. And he wants to come in these days, and he wants to baptize us afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit. When real revival experiences this, there'll be a new anointing upon the ministries of the church. There'll be a new anointing upon music and upon preaching. Everything that happens will have this power of the Holy Spirit operating upon it and in it and through it. Whenever there's been a real revival throughout history, there has always been an indication of power. But is that the greatest revival? Others of you might say, well, Lane, when I think about revival from what I've heard and maybe some of you would say, from what I've seen, when I think about revival from a historical standpoint, whenever it happened, there was always seemingly a new boldness to proclaim the gospel. Once people came under the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit, there was a new boldness. In Acts chapter 2, we know exactly what happened there. Jesus had told the disciples, go to Jerusalem. Tarry and wait there. Don't do anything. Don't try to convey my teachings. Don't go into all the world yet. Tarry. Tarry until you're endued with power from on high. And now that's happened. The 120 in the upper room have now experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. They've come into the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And Peter stands up to preach. If you had been planning Pentecost, would you have asked Peter to preach? I don't think I would have. I'd have looked at Peter and I'd said, Peter, you can go to heaven, but I don't want to hear you preach today. I mean, we know exactly what Peter did. Peter is the one who boasted before Christ was arrested and crucified that even though the other disciples might deny knowing Jesus, he said of himself, I'll go to the dungeon for you. I'll even die for you. And we also know that a few hours later, he denied knowing Jesus as Jesus had predicted not once but three times. But now this same Peter is standing up in front of this great crowd of people that had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast day, and he is preaching. And it's interesting to me what he said in front of some of those same ones of whom he was afraid. In front of those same ones, he says, listen carefully to what I say. This same Jesus whom you crucified, is alive. 
And he preached that incredible message on the day of Pentecost. And the Bible tells us that some 3,000 men embraced the gospel that day as a result of the sermon. And as you study on into the book of Acts, you'll find that a short time after that, more joined those who had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. 5,000 men plus the women and children. Listen, my friend, that's not preaching with apology. That's preaching with boldness and so I believe that when real revival comes into the hearts and lives individually of you and me and into the church corporately, there will be a new boldness to proclaim the Word of God. You see, I fear that we've allowed society and political correctness to quiet us too long. But when real revival comes, it's kind of like the proverbial fire out of control. People want to see what it's going to do next. When real revival comes, there will be a spirit of boldness among the people of God. And we'll not be ashamed to share the message. But is that the greatest revival? Others of you might say, well, Elaine, typically when I think about revival, I think about lost people getting saved. I mean, if we're going to do this, if we're going to have revival, certainly our motive and our mission is that people get saved. As I noted in my preliminary remarks, revival is for the church. And yes, I do remember those days when I started in evangelism back in 1971. I remember when much of my material when I would preach in front of a crowd like yourselves, it was evangelistic in nature with a desire to reach the unsaved. And we want to get everyone saved we can. But I've discovered this as I pastored and as I've worked in the church. Most of those people getting saved are not getting saved around our altars anymore. Oh, it does happen. But most of those getting saved today are getting saved because you and I care about them personally. And we're the vehicle, we're the voice. Not a preacher, not an evangelist, but you and me individually. Developing relationships, living the life, sharing the love of Christ. I have a good friend by the name of Dr. Mark Rutland. Most recently, he was president of Oral Roberts University. He held a revival meeting at Asbury College. It's now Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And he said one night he preached on the subject, love for the lost. And he said, when I finished the sermon, he said, I gave an invitation for people to respond to the challenge of that message. And he said, I looked down the center aisle and walking toward the front of that auditorium there at Asbury College was an elderly woman dressed completely in black, head to toe. Had on a black dress, the collar was tucked up under her chin. Sleeves all the way down to her wrist. The skirt of the dress draped neatly over a pair of little black button-up leather shoes. He said her hair was pulled tightly back into a bun on the back of her head. 
There was no makeup on her face, no jewelry hanging from her ears or her fingers, no brooch on her dress to adorn it. He said she kind of looked like holiness personified. And she, she came and she, with some difficulty, she knelt at the altar. He said, no one came to pray with her, so I got down in front of her after I closed the invitation. And he said, I looked at her and said, ma'am, with all due respect, you look old enough to be my mother. If you don't mind, I'll pray with you. He said, she looked up at me, eyeball to eyeball, reached across the altar railing, grabbed my coat lapels, and said, preacher, I've sinned. I've sinned. He said, in disbelief, I looked at her and said, you have? He said, she didn't look like a sinner to me. She said, preacher, you talked about love for the lost tonight. She said, I professed Pentecost 60 years ago. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, 60 years ago. And she said, you talk about love for the lost. She said, I wonder sometimes if I love anything or anyone. She said, I don't even know if I loved my husband who is dead and gone. I don't know if I love my children or my grandchildren. You talk about love for the lost. I have no love in my life. No love in my life. My friend Mark Rutland said, I looked at her and said, there's only one thing we can do about that, and that's pray. And he said, we began to pray. And she was dead earnest about it. He said, she began to pray. And you could tell by the tenor of her voice and the body language that she was seeking the face of God. And he said, then suddenly the Spirit of God bore witness with her spirit. And she came up from that altar and did a little holy dance around the front of Hugh's auditorium, praising God for that fresh touch of his presence and his power in her life. He said, the next night I came back to Hughes Auditorium for the following service, and he said, there she sat on the front pew of Hughes Auditorium, and sitting beside her was a little girl about 11 years old. He said, I went down and spoke to her. He said, it's so good to see you back tonight. Is this your granddaughter? He said, oh, no, preacher, this is not my granddaughter. He said, she turned and looked at the little girl and said, What's your name, honey? And Mark Rutland said, I looked at her and said, where'd you get this child? <laughs> she looked at Mark Rutland and said, I had to knock on 12 trailer park doors before I could find anybody who'd let me have their daughter for the evening. He said, that night, that little 11-year-old girl gave her heart to Jesus. He said, I came back the next night and there that elderly lady sat with that little 11-year-old girl and her sister. And that night the sister gave her heart to Jesus. He said, we came back for the following service and there she sat again with those two sisters and sitting beside them was their brother. And that night he gave his life to Jesus. And the following night he said, I came back to church and there she sat with those three children and sitting beside them was their mother. And that night, the mother gave her heart to Jesus. At the end of the revival, he said, we gave opportunity for testimony. 
He said that little 80-year-old lady stood and faced that great congregation of students and faculty and visitors from the community and said, God has done a new work in my life. He's done a new work in my life. And as long as he gives me energy, long as he gives me a voice with which to speak, there's nobody in that trailer park that's safe. I'm going to do everything I can to reach him for Jesus. Oh, yes. When real revival comes, there's an indication of power. There's a new boldness that takes hold of the people of God to share the gospel. And there is a desire to see the lost people saved. But is that the greatest revival? Go with me quickly to Revelation chapter 2. And you've been here before over the last couple of weeks. It's a remarkable passage of Scripture because in Revelation chapter 2, you will discover a church. And you will discover that from Acts chapter 2 to Revelation chapter 2, a span of 70 years approximately, something had gone wrong in the church. Something had gone wrong in the church. When I read this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, it reminds me of us. It's a microcosm of the average evangelical church today. As we read it together, you follow me as I read it for you. See if you don't agree. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the seven golden lampstands, and then he begins to describe them. I know your deeds. And he does. He knows what we do for him. He knows the energy that we expend in the name of the church. He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. And he does. He knows if you've worked hard for him. And some of us have. He says, I know that you have perseverance. Some of us have worked and worked and persevered to see the kingdom built and the church survive. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You see, those of us who are really Christian, we don't believe that you can be a Christian and be wicked at the same time. We, we just don't believe you can name the name of Jesus and then do ungodly things at the same time. We don't believe that. He says, I know that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not. I wouldn't be here tonight if a jury of my peers, fellow ministers, had not approved my credibility and my education so that I could stand before you and do this. It sounds a lot like us. You've persevered, have endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. Verse 6 says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans in John's day believed what most in evangelical circles believe today. You say, what's that? You say, they believe as long as you believe in God, you can live any way you want to, and the grace of God will just somehow be brushed over you and you'll be okay. He said, you hate that. And Jesus said, I hate it as well. But then he, he states the indictment. Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. 
you've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What's he saying to this church? Very simply, he's saying, you don't love me like you used to. The greatest revival is a revival of our love for him. A revival of your love for him. He said, you don't love me like you did at the first, at the beginning. Do we? Those of us who know him, do we love him with the same intensity that we loved him when we began with him? See, the greatest revival is a revival of your love, my love for him. I want to tell you a story in closing. It's a personal story. It'll take a few minutes. In 1995, I became a single dad. I have two sons. It's probably one of the most difficult times in my life. And I remember after that event in my life in December of 1995, I had to come off the road. I was doing itinerant ministry, what I'm doing now. I had to come off the road to take care of my sons, Winston, who was 10, and Wes, who was 16. And not long after this event happened in my life, a church in my hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina, called me. I just held a revival meeting for them. And, and the man said, Lane, we lost our pastor. Would you consider becoming our pastor? I felt it was timely in view of what had happened in my life. And so I moved to Greensboro, North Carolina. I threw my energy and my life into the lives of my two boys and that church. They finished the school year there in Alabama where we were living at the time and joined me in North Carolina as soon as the school year was over. And my son Wes and my son Winston attended the Wesleyan Christian Academy in High Point, North Carolina. Wes, the older of the two, is six foot eight, weighs 230 pounds. And when he walked on the basketball court at Wesleyan Christian Academy, I saw the coach salivating. I watched him play ball for the next two years. His younger brother was not going to be as big as his older brother, but he had the same gifts and talents and athletics, and I enjoyed watching my children play ball. In August of 1996, sitting in my office there at my desk, the phone rang. My secretary answered the phone and then buzzed me and said, Pastor Lane, it's for you, long distance, and told me the name of the man and I recognized it. I held a revival meeting for him the previous January at a church in Bedford, Indiana. Hi, Bob. How are you? Hi, Lane. 
I said, Bob, what can I do for you today? And he said, Lane, uh, my secretary's husband died today. And he said, she always enjoyed you coming to our church. I'd been there several times and said, she always enjoyed you coming to our church. She liked your style of preaching and your kind of music that you sing. I think it would be a great gesture on your part, Lane, if you could just give her a call and express your condolences. I didn't know her. I'd only seen her from a distance when I was there at the church. I said, Bob, give me her phone number. I'll call her this afternoon. And I did. Talked to her for maybe 30 seconds. Expressed my condolences. She thanked me and said goodbye. And I said goodbye. And I prayed for her and her family. But life went on. In October of 1996, that church where I was pastoring gave me a 50th birthday party. Complete with black everything. And in the process of putting all of that together, they got hold of my evangelistic mailing list and they sent out notices of my birthday asking people to send me birthday greetings so they could collect them and put them in a book and then just to send me cards as they could. So I started opening my mailbox and finding all of these cards in my mailbox. And one day I went and pulled the contents out of the mailbox and there among the cards that I'd gotten that day was a card from a Gretchen Niflis, Bedford, Indiana. I didn't recognize the name at first. But then I opened the card and out of the card fell a check for $10 for me for my birthday. I thought, well, how nice is that? And then I thought, oh, yes, that's the secretary at the Free Methodist Church in Bedford, Indiana. I wrote on the envelope, $10 check, send thank you note. Several days later, I was doing just that. I was taking all of the cards that I'd gotten, and I was sending thank you cards to those who had been kind enough to give me something for my 50th birthday. And I came to that card from Gretchen Niflis, Bedford, Indiana. And I don't know how these things happen. I can only explain to you that it, it's God working supernaturally to bring about his perfect will for our lives. And I opened up that card and I thought for a moment, she's a widow. I'm a single dad. Hmm. So you know what I did? I went to the Hallmark card shop. Wasn't going to give her one of those generic thank you cards. I went to the Hallmark card shop, and I bought a rather nice thank you card, ulterior motive in mine. And at the top of the card, I wrote, Dear Gretchen, thank you for the nice check you gave me for my birthday. And whatever else the card said. And at the bottom, I wrote these words. And where did this come from? Perhaps, if opportunity presents itself, we could spend some time together. Your friend, Lane Loman. And I thought, how ridiculous is this? 
She's in Indiana. I'm in North Carolina. This is not going to happen, Lane. But I put it in the envelope and addressed it, stamped it, put it in the mailbox, and off it went to Indiana. About seven days later, I opened the mailbox, and I pulled out a card from Bedford, Indiana, Gretchen Nifflis. I opened it up hurriedly. Dear Lane, thank you for the nice card and whatever else the card said. And then at the bottom, she wrote these words. Yes, if opportunity presents itself, perhaps we could spend some time together. Your friend, Gretchen Nifflis. <laughs> you know what I did next? I went back to the Hallmark card shop. We started this card correspondence. Thanksgiving, 1996 comes. I called her that morning. Hi, it's Lane. Oh, hi. First holiday without your husband. You're not going to be alone, are you? No, I'm going to be with my son and grandson, friends. I said, good, I'm going to be with my mom and my dad and my brothers and my sister and our families getting together for Thanksgiving. You have a good day. You too, she said. I hung up the phone. The following week, she called me. Forget the cards. Let's talk on the phone now. <laughs> so we started talking on the phone. Every night, 10, 15, we'd take turns calling one another. And we talked about virtually everything you can talk about. When two people, one from Indiana and one from North Carolina, began to put their lives together, a Christmas 1996 comes. I sent her three Christmas cards and one gift. She sent me three gifts and one Christmas card. <laughs> January 1997 comes. She tells me on the phone, my son and I are going to Florida on vacation. We begin to connive. I said, do you suppose you could talk Trent into coming through North Carolina on your way back from Florida to Indiana? And if you know your geography, it's not a straight shot from Florida to Indiana coming through North Carolina. But we pulled it off because he's a NASCAR fan. And as you know, in North Carolina, we've got all kind of NASCAR stuff to see. And so on a Sunday afternoon, I'm sitting at my neighbor's house, Mabel Lindley, having lunch with her. She was a member of my church. I saw a car pull in the driveway. I said, Mabel, I think my friends from Indiana have arrived. She said, let them wait. Finish your lunch. I said, I'll be right back. And I went out and I got Gretchen situated in the parsonage next door. Her son Trent went on to Charlotte to see the NASCAR stuff. I ran back over to Mabel. I said, Mabel, I got to eat quick. And I shoveled it in fast. And I said, thank you, Mabel. See you later. And I'm out of the house and I'm back over to the parsonage. And I'm sitting there in my recliner. Gretchen's sitting there on the couch and we talked for about an hour. And then it occurred to me, she's been on the road all day. She's got to be worn out. And so I looked at her and I said, I've got a room for you at the Red Roof Inn down here. Why don't I take you over there? You could get some rest. I'll pick you up at 530 and then we'll go to church together and then go out to dinner after church. She said, I'd like that. She got up off the couch, started toward the back door of the parsonage. She got to the doorway that led into the kitchen area, the breakfast nook area that would lead to the back door. But for some reason, she stopped right there at that entranceway and let me catch up to her. And when I caught up to her there in that entranceway, she turned and she looked me right in the eye. And I discovered my lips still work. <laughs> and I kissed her right on the mouth. 
We spent three wonderful days together. Wednesday afternoon, her son came to pick up his mother. He took a photo of Gretchen and myself standing in front of the parsonage. And they drove away. Back to Indiana. Something in here left with her. A few days later, I got a card from her. And in the card, the picture her son had taken of us. And on the back, she wrote these words. This is the day I fell in love with you. I started doing crazy things. <laughs> I was having feelings that I hadn't felt in years. There was this woman in Indiana that had found a place in my life and I couldn't get her out of my mind. I was falling in love with her and I wanted her to love me the way I felt I was loving her. It's a long story. I'll tell you this. I wanted to keep my face in front of her. That was before Skype and FaceTime and all the social media that we have today. And so you know what I did? I took my video camera. I took my video camera and I duct taped it to the dash of my board, uh, uh, the dash of my car. And when I'd get in the car, I'd turn it on. And I'd talk to it just like it was her. Hi, how you doing? Uh, I'm going to do some visitation today and probably go out to lunch, so you'd like to go along with me. And I'd just talk to it just like she was sitting there. I'd take it to the office. I'd put it in my file cabinet in my office and I'd turn it on. I'd get over behind my desk. I'd say, Good morning. <laughs> nice to see you today. I thought you'd like to see what I do here and here at the office. And, and I just talked to it just like she was there. I'd take it to the house in the evening when the day was done, and I'd put it on the footstool there in front of my recliner, and I'd turn it on and say, had a good day, hadn't we? Hey, I'm going to watch Andy Griffith. You want to watch it with me? Okay, let's watch Andy Griffith today. And I'd send it to her so she'd have that. She came to see me Easter of 1997. And I'd made up my mind I was going to ask her to marry me. I have friends down at Radford, Virginia. They have a beautiful antebellum home called Grayson, circa 1830. They'd fixed the house up, decorated it with antiques. It's just absolutely picture postcard kind of a place. I called them and I said, I want you to meet somebody. The lady of the house, her name was Ramsey. She said, I've been praying God would bring someone into your life. We arrived there on Monday afternoon after Easter services at my church where I pastored. Had a wonderful southern style meal in that beautiful home. and Had some fellowship with Ramsey and Carl McNeil. And she was going to stay, Gretchen was going to stay in the basement apartment that fixed it up so nicely for her, their son when he lived at home. And I was going to stay in the second, on the second floor in a bedroom up there. So after we had dinner and fellowship, I escorted Gretchen down to the basement. I'd already put the ring at the end of the couch. She didn't know about that. And when we got downstairs, I thought to myself, it's, it's, it's got to be right. This has got to be right. It's got to be special. Too much light in here. Let's turn off some lights. 
Should I turn off a few lights? Music. Got to create the ambiance for this. Got to have some music. I found a tape deck, but no tapes, no cassettes, no music. I said, Gretchen, I'll be right back. I ran upstairs and I said, Ramsey, you have any tapes? You got a tape player down there, but there are no tapes. You got any tapes, Ramsey? She said, I've got one. I said, what is it? She said, it's your hymn album. I said, it'll have to work. Give it to me. And I took it, and I ran back downstairs, and I put it in the tape player, and I rewound it all the way back to the beginning. Didn't know which side was going to play. I didn't look. I pushed the play button, and I went over, and I got down in front of Gretchen on my knee. There she sat at the couch, at the couch and I reached around, and I picked up the ring, and I opened it up, and I looked her in the eye. I said, Gretchen, Louise, Niflis, would you agree to be my, about the time I got to be my wife, the tapes started playing <laughs> to the refrain of trust and obey. <laughs> she said yes. And we were married May the 22nd, 1997 at the Bedford Pre-Methodist Church. We celebrate 18 years this coming May. I can't even begin to describe to you tonight what she means to me. <laughs> She's as beautiful on the inside. As she is on the outside. I'm her hero. I'm her favorite preacher. There's not a thing she wouldn't do for me. She put her arms around me this morning about 5 o'clock. As I got in the car to drive to the airport. She kissed me. She said, I love you. I'll pray for you. Please be careful. And I put my arms back around her and I hugged her as tightly as she had hugged me. Told her how much I loved her. I don't know what I'd do without her. I'd never do anything to hurt her. I'd never say a harsh word that would wound her. She's done too much for me. She left an aging mother and father, a son and a grandson, her job, her church family, all of her friends in Bedford, Indiana, and she moved to Greensboro, North Carolina. The only person she knew there was me. I can't even begin to describe the depth of my love for this woman. And it occurs to me tonight that if she and I can have that kind of a relationship as husband and wife, what kind of relationship do you think we should be able to have and ought to have with Jesus? The greatest revival is the revival of your love for him. 
So tonight, I'm going to invite you to come. You can kneel at this place of prayer. You can stand. I'm going to invite you to come and do one thing. Now, if there's no power in your life, maybe you need to address that. If there's no boldness for him in your life, perhaps you need to pray about that. If as a Christian and you've served him for some time and not influenced somebody for him, perhaps you need to consider that as well. But primarily, I'm asking you to come tonight and do one thing. Love on him. Just love on him. Embrace him. Tell him how much you love him. Think about your love relationship to him. That's it. You're just going to play. This is your time. Just get up from wherever you are and come here and just love on him. Your first love. Is that too much to ask? After all he's done for us? Just love on him. Just love on him. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O oh, my soul, rejoice. 
take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Can you sing it with me? Let's sing it together. To worship you, oh my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you bask in your love for us and we just want to say Jesus we love you I love you Lord so thank you for your presence thank you for your people who've responded and Father may we continue to walk in your spirit as we receive and as we expect for your power to wash over us. Father, thank you so much for these moments together. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. lift you up and we give you glory for it's in Jesus name all the people said Amen. Well, I know that I'm sure glad I was here so go knock on some doors <laughs> right bring some brothers and sisters God is working he's moving so thank you guys, and we'll see you tomorrow morning or whenever you come back. Oh, we're going to do, oh, I'm sorry. We're going to do a love offering at the end of our services.
so if you would, is that going to be at the very back? Okay, there will be buckets at the very back. So if you, we're going to take a love offering, and that's going to go to Lane throughout this whole time. So if you would just put that in the buckets as you leave, we would appreciate that. We'll see you next time. <laughs>